On today's episode, Gender and Disaster Emergency Management, with special guest, Alex Bellarosso. Welcome to Exclusion, a podcast that explores all things equity, diversity, and inclusion in the workplace. Exclusion is brought to you by Canadian Equality Consulting and Biarg Consulting. Alicia and Marcy here. Our special guest today is Alex Veloroso, a specialist in gender and disaster emergency management in British Columbia. So welcome to the podcast today, Alex. Thank you. We're recording this podcast in two locations today. Alicia and I are in Calgary and Alex is in British Columbia. So it's important for us to provide land recognition for both traditional territories. So as always, in the spirit of respect, reciprocity, and truth, we acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional territories and oral practices of the Treaty 7 region in Southern Alberta and Region 3 Métis Nation, as well as the traditional unceded territory of the Latako Dene people. We acknowledge all nations, Indigenous and non, who live, work, and play on these lands and to all who assist in their stewardship for generations to come. All right, before we jump in, a bit of background about our guest, Alex. Alex brings with her a wide variety of skills as an accomplished humanitarian professional with experience in disaster management and gender. Alex holds a BA in international development with a focus on community development, a master's degree in disaster and emergency management with focus on gender and disaster, and certificates in shelter and settlement coordination in emergencies, addressing gender-based violence in emergencies, and international humanitarian law. Her most recent accomplishments include Gender Pro, a specialized technical program at George Washington University. Alex volunteers as the VP of her local Women's Resource Center and has recently spearheaded a Women's in Leadership initiative in her community. Dedicated to working with communities, Alex has extensive practitioner experience in emergency management throughout British Columbia and during various responses in Canada. She is currently a senior advisor at EMBC, Emergency Management British Columbia, and is a gender equity advisor through the Gender Equity Office. Prior to joining EMBC, Alex provided technical support as a gender specialist with CUSO International in Guyana, South America. She participated in an emergency mission for a refugee crisis in Tanzania with Doctors Without Borders and provided expertise during various responses as a coordinator with the Canadian Red Cross. So I know we were in good hands today in our discussion. So thank you for joining us today, Alex. Thank you, Alicia. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. So we'll start with Alex. Can you tell us a bit about your work as a gender equity advisor and being that you are a gender and disaster specialist, kind of how you arrived to this um, expertise in this position? We'd, we'd love to hear your journey. Yeah, it's um, it's been a bit of a journey, actually. So I've been working towards this for the last 12 years and slowly building up on my skill sets and knowledge in the field. 
I had always had an interest in humanitarian work in terms of disasters and development work. And I started with going back to school to get my BA in international development. And as I learned more about complex disasters and the development nexus, I became more and more interested in the challenges faced by women. I did quite a bit of volunteer work and training in disaster management, and also looked at gender-based violence and some advocacy work. You know, I've really tried to balance my practitioner experience with academic grounding, and so decided to pursue a master's de uh, degree in disaster emergency management. And that's where I started to really focus on gender and disaster and try to understand why we weren't implementing the best practices when the research showed clear gaps in approaches to emergency management. This really had me on a path of like, how can we do our work better? I started to you know, broaden my understanding around systems of inequality, oppression, and the impacts of patriarchy, not only for women and girls and gender diverse peoples, but also for men and boys as well. And so, you know, as you mentioned, I've worked in a few different sectors, um, including actually victim services and a gender and inclusion specialist overseas. I think this has really helped to round out my understanding of intersectionality and social inclusion. And to be honest, just like how much work there is to be done regarding gender equality. When I returned to Canada, I was able to combine my experience in disaster management and working with diverse populations in my current role as a senior advisor and uh, with Emergency Management BC. And this role looks at policy development, implementation, and how we can provide more equitable emergency management while meeting communities where they're at and acknowledging and valuing the work of Indigenous peoples. So within my time with DMBC, there was this opportunity for members in the public service to train and become gender equity advisors through the Gender Equity Office. So I did that, and now I volunteer with a group of other public servants from across government who are looking at how to raise the profile of Gender-Based Analysis Plus, which is really like an intersectional approach to policies and programs, and how to incorporate this into our work. And as you said, I've completed my training at George Washington with Gender Pro in March, and I'm looking forward to helping move the agenda forward on gender and disaster. And so while I keep working on building what I think are really important and critical skill sets through networking with other practitioners and doing continuous training and hopefully sharing and applying what I've learned through activities such as podcasts and webinars and presentations. And so here we are. We're doing this. Yes, and it's a really timely discussion for right now. That's for sure. Now, Marcy and I, we too are very much advocates for the consideration of gender and disaster. There has been countless studies showing how particularly women and other marginalized populations experience greater negative impacts than others. And could you elaborate for us and our viewers from your expertise how gender is a critical aspect of disaster relief and what needs to be considered, particularly around the current pandemic, for example? Yeah, sure. So not only in disaster relief, but actually in all phases of disasters. We know research has shown that women, girls, men and boys prepare for, respond to and recover from disasters differently, not only based on gender, but on various intersections. Disasters really accentuate existing gender inequalities. And that's what we need to look at to ensure we're not creating additional hardships or deepening these inequities. We need to consider how disaster is impacting, you know, women, girls, men and boys. And also gender diverse peoples. I want to make sure that we're really focusing as well on LGBTQ um, populations. So looking at COVID-19, a number of issues have come up and it'll be interesting to see actually how this shifts with the proposed phases of reopening the economy because that announcement was just made yesterday. So, you know, we're still kind of learning and waiting and seeing what's going to happen. 
And so although, of course, we want to avoid generalizations, women and girls tend to face additional burdens in response to recovery in terms of overrepresentation. So when we look at healthcare or the care economy where a majority of the workers are female and who and they're facing additional risk because of their work, we look at unpaid work in the home, especially for single-headed households, which are usually female, and the division of labor. There's this additional responsibility of childcare and education falling on parents at home. And I have to say, like, COVID has really brought to light the gender division of labor that I don't think people were prepared for. I think everybody was kind of thinking, like, things were okay. And inside the home, I, there have been some tensions, I think, around who's doing what. And, you know, who can afford to stay or work from home versus who is forced to work outside the home during this pandemic, which tends to be lower wage jobs. So now when we look, of course, at the increase in gender-based violence, which is especially troubling given the lack of mobility for women, and I think of rural women being in a rural location, to leave homes and to go to shelters or transition homes within the pandemic, um, the forced restriction of movement in some communities, you know, no in or out is also a concern. And I think it was Better Women Support Services that reported they had a 300% increase in calls at the start of COVID-19. Even in our own community at our resource center, women who are looking to flee violence don't have the financial security to find housing, especially if they've been laid off or were already financially vulnerable. Reports are now coming out of women being coerced for sexual favors in exchange for safe housing or rent. Um, the increase of transactional sex and abuse of women, children, and youth in the exchange of goods and services is, you know, something that needs to be looked at, especially around housing. You know, there's a lack of safe spaces for LGBT youth or minors who are homeless. We need to look at decrease of medical service services because of pandemic, which may leave vulnerable communities with limited service exposed, um, impacting women and girls negatively around sexual health and reproduction. So there's there's a lot of issues. And then, you know, specific groups such as people of color who are also impacted differently as dem demonstrated in the U.S. Um, I believe we've seen reports which have shown higher mortality rates for African-Americans. And this is based on structural inequalities. It's very similar to what we saw happen with Katrina. Um, you know, increase in stress and decline in mental health for everyone. Um, even the concept of space and hygiene is tricky when you think of who has safe housing and who has access to clean soap and water. And that really what we need to be mindful of is that there is a need for interventions to be accessible and appropriate for community members. And that's where you need the local context and knowledge as well. I do think there's some good policy direction or guidelines that could be developed to address the gendered impacts of this health pandemic. Thank you for bringing light to so many of those topics. When I was doing my master's, I had the opportunity to help co-teach a class on natural disasters and resiliency. And it's really amazing how this pandemic is emphasizing the parts of our society that um, were already problems and it's just magnifying them, right? And and that is something that I think that in general, if we're looking at the resiliency of a community, the resiliency of, of peoples within a community, these are all factors that, that I, I feel are often overlooked. So I think it's good to bring attention to these. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, thank you for all that. That was amazing. A really great recap of kind of all the big um, disproportionate impacts on, uh, on women and non-binary individuals um, and all of their diversity. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of these impacts can also be seen during like times of economic instability or recessions. Mm -hmm. and, and in Alberta, for example, um, where Alicia and I are, we were in a recession before this hit. 
and um, and it just keeps worsening along with the pandemic. So it's almost um, compounded all of these impacts even more. And um, there's data that's coming out tomorrow, I believe, in Alberta. So that's Friday, um, Friday May eighth, and uh, where that's going to be released, talking about how even before this hit the economic decline and, um, and suffering was largely on women. Um, and then now we have all these, you know, compounding effects from the pandemic. Um, so, but to, to kind of build upon what you're saying, um, we know that like you've shared these amazing um, impacts from your research and from your work that you see every day in your job. Um, so, you know, these impacts are there, they're proven. Um, we, you see them and how come government still isn't really considering them or not valuing them as much, as much as other data that they're receiving, because we don't really see governments acting with, you know, a gender-based analysis. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, and because when we look at gender equality, besides being the right thing to do, there is a benefit to everyone in society. You know, research shows that the economy benefits and societies are happier, healthier, and function better. Um, and, you know, when I did my thesis work in 2014, I asked the same questions regarding disaster and emergency management in Canada. I heard many reasons, including that, you know, gender had been done, air quotations around that. Uh, we needed to treat everyone the same, so essentially gender-blind policies, and the focus was on social vulnerabilities, but not inclusive, inclusive of gender. And this isn't, you know, the research wasn't just on government, it was across Canada in different sectors, and so I think looking at government and organizations, there are a couple of reasons for this. Um, you know, in part, perhaps there was a lack of understanding around gender as a cross-cutting theme, and that gender is not only about women. And, uh, you know, Marcy, you really touched on that just with your comments. Actually, both of you around um, disasters really bringing about the vulnerabilities that already exist and the inequities that already exist. Um, I do think there is a lack of willingness to get uncomfortable and look at gender dynamics, which also forces you to look at patriarchy and how traditional emergency management is gendered and masculine and ultimately forces you to look at the way you do your work as an organization. And to be quite frank, it wasn't mandated. Most international assistance is tied to some form of gender analysis, but in Canada, that wasn't the case. Now that we have women and gender equity at the federal level who has rolled out gender-based analysis plus or GBA plus, and that has helped to bring gender equity considerations to policy programs, but there is still a gap. You know, we're also hearing that during a disaster is the wrong time to address some of these gendered gaps, yet that's actually what we need to be doing to be most mindful of what's happening. And I think now there is more of a desire to do this work, but it's still so complex. While we can certainly provide some ways to address gender and operationalize practical needs within disasters, it can't really be reduced down to checklists. The work is in the analysis and being context specific, and that takes time, it takes resources, skills, um, which need to be included in a budget, which is totally doable if it's a priority. And I think people and those in leadership care, but maybe they don't know where to start. And I, I think that's creating a bit of tension there. 
When I think that's really interesting, what you said there about how it has to be context dependent. I know here here in Alberta, before this happened, we were known, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, how we have the most not-for-profits per capita in the world, for example, which means we already had a lot of boots on the ground that were doing a lot of that frontline work, which once again was disproportionately put on the shoulders of women in marginalized communities. And in a situation like this, I feel like not just necessarily here in Alberta, but across Canada, we're putting even more emphasis on these people on the front lines um, because they do have the context, but then we are even overburdening the people that are already overburdened before. Yes, absolutely. And uh, we know that, um, you know, women for the most part really help in terms of like developing the fabric of society and rebuilding society, especially uh, after a disaster. And that, you know, volunteer work, the community work, the social connections of social networks uh, do tend to be gendered. And so when we think of like that community work that women do, we think of the home, like the housework and the homework that women do. We think of the paid work that women do. And then there's the emotional labor. Like that is a lot to deal with. And I think, again, COVID is the space where we're finally really talking about it because a lot of people are feeling it across the board. Again, depending on where you are on that spectrum, you're going to feel those impacts differently. But I think this is really the first time where, as a society, we are starting to acknowledge there's there's a lot going on for people that are on their plates and it is it is gendered. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. And Can I just I think you touched on a really important point that Alicia and I did a previous podcast on around how to almost sell EDI or get people on board with it and to like, what's the best argument tailored to those individuals that will make them realize how important this is and bring them on board. Um, And you talked, you know, a little bit about emergency management and the patriarchy and how emergency management is very male dominated and very kind of regimented. And um, when I interacted with the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, it was a lot of like former military guys And, um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Like, is there, how do you think it could be sold to them or explained in a way that they might understand or resonate with it? Yeah, and it's tricky because emergency management is based in sort of this uh, military civil society framework. Um, And it has shifted and it is shifting. And I think, you know, we're acknowledging, and I'm not going to speak for all emergency management organizations or government, but I think overall there is an acknowledgement that there is, um, we can do our work in a better way, and that's being more intersectional, and as opposed to focusing on maybe just strictly technical skills, which are really important, but it's not just about incident command, it's about what do we do with the aftermath of a, of a disaster, why, what are the impacts for people? And it's really, I think, around recovery. And ultimately, long-term recovery becomes community development. Like, we really have to acknowledge that linkage. Um, and those are some bigger pieces, because then we need to look at, you know, we got to unpack that baby and look at, you know, historical processes, colonization, of course, for Canada, um, uh, food security, income security, like there's so much there. And I don't think traditional emergency management has the the framework or the structure to really unpack that right now. But there are a lot of good people who want to do good work and are understanding that there is a need because 
if we don't address um, or we don't look at uh, GVA plus within emergency management, then the policies and programs and all that good work, it's not misguided, but it's missing the mark in many ways. And we want to ensure that we are not creating conditions that further um, make people vulnerable or create those deepening inequities. And in terms of like convincing, I mean, people care. I don't think those of us that are in disaster emergency management do this work because we don't care. Uh, sometimes I think it's just a matter of really raising the awareness and the profile around like why does gender matter? And this is why it matters. And this is what we can do about it. And I think those are the pieces around education awareness that maybe haven't always existed. Like I said, when I did my, um, my thesis in 2014, there wasn't very much interest. Like I tried to start a gender and disaster training for one of the organizations I worked at and there was no uptake, there was no buy-in. And now I believe the same organization has a gender advisor. So, you know, it, I think it takes some time to shift that narrative. Yeah, and, and a, lot of, a lot of the change I've seen happen within kind of government agencies anyway is when it's um, pushed kind of from the top down. Like here's a new requirement. You have to consider this now. Yeah, I think I call it like the sandwich. It's coming from the top down, but also at the ground level, the grassroots sort of thing. Like we have seen this happening. We know that this is going on. I don't think anybody is too overly surprised about what we're seeing around this pandemic if you've worked in emergencies. And like I said, we don't want to generalize, but I think there's certain things that we can, you know, assume or look for around some of the impacts. And it's it's starting to shift, but definitely I think it's um, gender equality. You know, people are like, oh, what is that? What does it mean? It's just for women. Yeah. Heaven forbid if you use the F word, feminist. <laughs> like, nobody <laughs> wants to <laughs> acknowledge that. I mean, these are not bad things. It's really about be, becoming a more equitable society. And because gender is cross-cutting, disasters need to be addressed in a way that looks at those differences. And yeah, I think there's there's so much more that we can do and we continue to work on. So Marcy and I have mentioned this once again on our podcast before about how when we write policy and we look at creating policy, how when policy is created to be, for example, gender neutral, how in fact that can very much be damaging with exactly the type of things that we are talking about. So as we discuss this, the aftermath of the crisis and the moving forward in the rebuilding phase, what do we have to consider what gender considerations are important to make sure that when we move forward, we do so successfully for all? Yeah, thank you. And I really appreciate that you mentioned, you know, that being gender neutral, because at the end of the day, it's really being gender blind, because we're ignoring all those different impacts and needs for men, women, boys and girls. And so in the aftermath of a crisis, so when we look at really recovery, you can't have recovery without the active and meaningful participation of impacted populations, especially within an intersectional framework. If we don't, we risk deepening inequities and further marginalizing people. People need to be a part of the recovery process and not the like heteronormative, uh, you know, white European uh, male or even, you know, white female. I think we have to be really diverse around like who are the people that are being impacted and how do we ensure that their voices are being heard? 
So gender equitable recovery has the power to be transformative and address unequal power relations. And there's a great example actually from Hawaii on their proposed feminist recovery policy. It's really taking a look at how to address different needs and make deep cultural shifts to promote gender equality. You know, it looks at care economy, looks at gender-based budgeting. And if we shift from some of those practical needs, so like operational pieces, for example, you know, including locks on toilets for women or having women safe spaces, which are important and should be happening, but we need to move beyond that and to, you know, to address the root causes of gender inequality, which is really unequal power relations. Recovery can be transformative and help to support and promote gender equality within a given society. And um, yeah, I think that that's, we, we need to have people as part of the solution and it needs to be from people that we're not hearing from. I think Iceland is doing something similar to Hawaii as well. Uh, we'll post some of those in our resource section because it is really interesting. Um, and I know uh, there's been discussions overall in the States about this, but when you only look at GDP, if GDP is the only thing that you decide on if your society is successful, then um, it shows you how much we miss. And I really love the way that Hawaii is approaching this. Um, and if and if people haven't had a chance to read that, I, I suggest that they do. Um, we have posted it on our social media before and we'll do that again. But it does take a much more holistic look and it's trying to look at the groups that have been missed in the past and the importance of, for example what their elders bring to the community and women bring mm -hmm. to the community is so much emphasized in, in their recovery plan, which I think is so important. Yeah. And if we just look at GDP, the, the kicker is that if we have a more equitable society, GDP actually increases. So again, like not that I want to go with a financial argument, but sometimes that's what people hear. And really I can't think of a reason you know, other than patriarchy, you know, why we wouldn't want to work for promote gender equality and apply some of this methodology. Excellent. Um, thank you for sharing that. So what are some other sort of responses that you would recommend government or emergency management agencies do um, for to alleviate the just the um, gender impacts of COVID-19 right now. So if you were in that position of power and you were the decision maker coordinating the entire response, um, what would you do right now? Yeah, so for me, I think it's crucial that um, we apply a gender-based analysis lens uh, plus lens to the phases of disaster management for this response. And of course, to the other seasonal hazards that will continue to occur while we're still in the midst of this pandemic, so very much a layered response, which requires ongoing attention, um, I would recommend a, or I would do if I could, a, a rapid gender analysis, which could also be part of this GBA plus lens, and really seek to understand what's going on and who will be impacted and um, how our actions may increase or reduce inequities. Uh, next, I would collect data disag by disaggregated by sex and gender for women, girls, men, and boys, and gender diverse peoples. This will help to identify who is experiencing which impacts, uh, better informing interventions, policies, and programs with practical recommendations. I think that's really important because this can seem a little bit abstract, and if we can do this work and they come with practical recommendations, I think it shows the importance of why we're doing this work. And then impacted populations have to be included in all aspects of the disaster cycle. So the process needs to be participatory, you know, who is missing from the conversation, who loses out, ensuring underrepresented groups are part of the planning process or part of advisory groups during recovery to ensure the needs of those in disaster will be considered. 
Well, we're reaching closer to the end of our discussion here. But before we do, I want to make sure that we ask you, is there anything that we're missing that we haven't discussed today that's important before we move on? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's such a big topic. Um, No, I mean, I want to thank you both for giving me the opportunity to share and speak on some of this. And I think it's really important to raise awareness and for people to ask questions. And it's okay not to understand. Like, I am still going through the learning process. And um, I really appreciate feedback and learning from others and looking at research and connecting in. So I think it's important and we need to keep promoting gender equality, um, regardless of which sector you work in. And um, I think that just keep top of mind, like gender is cross-cutting, it's important, and we need to be able to to do better. Thank you very much for, for this discussion today. And a few key takeaways that I have written down here is that uh, disasters can extenuate existing inequalities and that often uh, these inequalities are seen by women and girls and other marginalized populations because they are overrepresentative and how COVID has brought to light uh, for many the deep-seated divisions of labor within our society, either domestically or beyond, that there's been an uptick in gender-based violence with a lack of mobility for many women and children, uh, with restrictions of movement and maybe rural localities, and that this can be compiled with a lack of financial security. Uh, When discussing emergency management uh, systems and processes, traditionally they have been quite male-dominated and regimented, quite often maybe in more of a traditional military civil society style, And it is important when we move forward here that we dissect this model and make sure that we bring a much more intersectional lens to our response because recovery long-term will only be as good as the resiliency of our community and our community will only be resilient uh, if we make sure that we locate those that are most impacted, make sure that they are part of the discussion and that when we make our responses that we um, make sure they're practical and that they acknowledge um, everybody that is affected and that when we do create policy that it is never gender neutral because gender neutral equals gender blind. I really liked that description because I think that's important to understand that if we think that we are creating policy without a gendered lens, then we will miss. The response in the city versus response in the rural areas isn't necessarily going to be the same. We um, And same with even communities within in these areas. And mm-hmm. I think that's important that we, we understand that. And I liked also that we discussed about um, context that we need context in order to to make proper decisions and to not forget um, the intersections associated with gender, not not just gender, but to look at a a more holistic, full discussion of that. And uh, once again, we mentioned about what Hawaii is doing, and I think that it would be really great if lots of groups take a look at that. And there's other groups that are, are... being more holistic as well. So it's important to look at other parts of society you're doing in order to have good results. Marcy, was there anything that I missed? 
because there was a lot that we discussed today. I don't want to miss anything. I, I could talk a lot about this. <laughs> oh, I think that that was great. Excellent. So on that note, don't forget to check out the resources section of the podcast to find the references for this episode and additional information on this topic. And once again, you can continue to find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Buzzsprout. And please hit subscribe to be notified when a new episode is released. And we'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment. And let's continue the conversation. Let us know what you think. You can send us your questions. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we would love to hear from you. So thank you, Alex, for our discussion today. I know this is just the beginning for sure. (laughs) And we'd love to have you on again, maybe later on when we're further in the process to see how we're doing and maybe what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. Because I know we're early in this pandemic and in this current crisis. So we'd love to have you on again. Oh, thank you very much. I would love to to be back and to have another discussion on this and maybe hear back from your viewers and listeners around what they're seeing. And, um, you know, I'm only here in my in my little bubble in my one area and pulling research from different areas and hearing anecdotal evidence from other areas. So I think it'd be good to have a, a broader discussion. And yeah, who knows what the next couple of months will bring and um, what changes or shifts can be made. So I'm I'm absolutely um, happy to join you again. And thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. All right, everyone. Until next time. Bye. 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 Bye.